Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, we are going to talk about, on our podcast, Monty Python. Sorry, I meant Montesquieu. Charles-Louis de Seconda, Baleron de la Bred et de Montesquieu. A uh, man's got a hella long name, but his ideas are even longer. Uh, he wrote three books that are important, only one of which anyone gives a shit about. Specifically, The Spirit of the Laws. And we're going to be discussing this with one of the leading experts on this subject. Our guest today is perhaps the greatest living philosopher from Latin America. And he does not lag behind at all behind his hero Montesquieu in the slightest, whether that is in academic or his personal achievements. Please join me in welcoming to the studio, Alessandro. Hello, everyone. I am very happy to be here in this pilot episode for this brand new and quite amazing podcast. Yeah, this is actually episode 57, not just kidding. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Wrong podcast, I'm sorry. <laughs> we still don't know what the podcast will be called, but it will eventually get a name. Uh-huh, fair enough. Yeah, so why don't you tell us in the time span of 10 seconds, a really, really brief summary of everything Montesquieu ever said, starting... Three, two, one, now. So there are states and there are some more correct states for, or political, uh, oh my God, this is difficult to do We'll get into that a bit more. Uh-huh. So, uh, okay, I, yeah, go on. I was just going to say, if I actually had to describe what Montesquieu said in a very brief sentence, it would be something along the lines, um, even though there are many different ways of doing government, only some are right for some states. Because it's actually quite interesting how he believed that, well, he made this categorization, there are three sorts of state types. There are, you know, republics, which we all know and love, yeah. there are monarchies, quite prone during his lifetime, and there are, you know, just these despotic states. Now, of course, he gave these names, but in reality, we nowadays know them as different things. I think, especially in the monarchy, we would not actually use the title. We would actually say more of a constitutional monarchy, which separates them from the despotic in which he believed to be these uh that what's the difference yeah yeah because he you know he believed this despotic states were these rather savage oriental states that had no rules but the voice of the despot so essentially anything that he said was the law unlike you know the more advanced northerner euro uh, monarchies where it was like oh yeah hmm. oh, magna carta yeah indeed or a frenchman to be praising the british constitution yeah yeah but why he does that he also says uh, a very interesting thing because essentially Montesquieu Dubai said there are different climates in you know different parts of the world and climate directly affects which political system should be instituted in you know in the nation so essentially he said and he had this entire biological theory as to why this is the case he said in the more north states the cold makes the fibers so i guess he meant the muscles of the people shorter and tougher which made them more insensible so they weren't as moved by their passions so they had a more logical and you know level-headed type of thought but at the same time they were boring us <laughs> um, Anyone and, to Greenland in winter can confirm. Uh, there's a reason. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. So he said, well, those people are perfect for republics. Well, you know, if you go further down south, more to, you know, near to the equator, you have, so let's say Northern Africa or very Southern Italy, despotic states are actually a preferred system because the fibers in the body are far looser, which creates far weaker men. And thus they are more moved by their passions and they need a despot to control the people, how they are governed. Isn't this something that like goes back to the ancient Greeks? I'm pretty sure, I don't remember who it was, maybe Aristotle who wrote something similar about the northerners when the southerners and that by no coincidence greece is right in the middle where it's perfect uh-huh. <laughs> yeah as well uh-huh yeah funny enough montesquieu does that as well just instead greece or italy he says oh yeah i mean france and oh, paris just so happen to be in the middle you know in a moderate government anywhere <laughs> they don't live as being the perfect place yeah yeah it would be nice place the perfect government emerges in uh <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, I feel they will be seen as, you know, these crazy revolutionaries and traitors to the uh, to the motherland or whatever. Yeah, the British government stuff was, like, really good, so... Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, you know, they, they were still kind of barbarian, northern barbarians of sorts. Barbarians with a rigorous... With a really good constitution. Now, that seems to be completely... All of that seems to be completely ahistorical and geographically deterministic, but that was all the rage at the time. Um, yeah, yeah, actually... Essentialism and, like, yeah. Yeah, something which is very interesting of Montesquieu is to compile his big book, The Spirit of the Lost. He actually took 20 years to do it. And to get his ideas and information, what he did is, uh, well, he traveled. And he also got a lot of information from what he said, you know, different travels that went to, to the Orient and, and to Arabian and whatnot. Um, and what did he and from Apparently that people in the Orient were prone to despotic states. Well, the thing is, well, okay, as I said before, he divided these types of government into three. The thing is, each type of this government, and this I think is probably the core of his theory, is maintained by what he called a principle. So he said, well, republics, and in republics, by the way, he bunched up both democracies and aristocracies. He said they are maintained, or at least democracies are maintained by political virtue, um, which is a very weird thing. Essentially, it's sort of selflessness and love of the state. Yeah, especially that love of the state, where people are not only, you know, do not only do what they want, but what is best for everybody, what's best for the state, and so on. And it's probably the hardest one to maintain, because everyone needs to be really virtuous, you know? Like those Roman Republic types that were all in favor of the of the Senate and whatnot. Then he said, well, aristocracies, yeah, I mean, they also need need but it's it's a little bit different what they need that their principle should be moderation why because yeah i mean even though well the only equality or this only law for the state it's not as necessary as long as the aristocrats don't believe themselves to be better than the rest of the aristocrats they have to be moderate in their actions let's say then in monarchies it becomes a little bit different because in monarchies all you need is honor Because the thing is, in the monarchies, you still have a sort of, you know, you have all the nobles and so on. But essentially what you want to do to keep them loyal to the king, because the king cannot do everything that he commands. He needs people to do it for him. 
you just the the thing is they have to believe that they will earn honor through doing things that will make the king happy or that he will believe to be the correct i guess course of yeah precisely Uh is there like an idea of loyalty wrapped up in that in that conception of honor yeah yeah precisely because essentially what you want to do is you want to avoid them from doing a coup d'etat to the king he actually and Montesquieu has this very interesting idea where he says each government can become corrupt. Yeah. And, you know, the purpose of a government is not to, you know, make everyone happier or anything like that. It's just to keep being the same government for a very long time. And corruption essentially for Montesquieu means erosion of what the government is. So if, you know, you have a republic, it can easily degenerate or, well, become corrupt and become a despotic state. Uh, And it's not bad that it's a despotic state, it's not bad that it's a monarchy and it's not bad that it's a republic. It's just bad that it changes. That's essentially what you want to avoid, this corruption. Does he not differentiate, does he not have a preference for any one of the states? Oh, this is one of the most probably contested topics. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, here's the thing. This is one of the most contested things within Montesquieu, where some authors claim that he didn't have any preference. Though, I mean, probably the majority say, yeah, actually, he had a little bit of a bias for monarchies. Not only because he said, you know, actually, he mentioned somewhere in the book that he prefers moderate states. And of course, he says, well, what is the most moderate form of government? Oh, of course, monarchies, because climate-wise, they're in the middle. So, you know, not too hot, not too cold. He also says... Like a temperature sense rather than a political... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, linked closely. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Also, of course, the people are also moderate, as you mentioned, because they are not, you know, these stoic, really machine-like people, and at the same time, they are not these complete hedonistic southern people either. They are just kind of like in the middle. They are logical enough, but also they're kind of fun. That's kind of like what he thinks of the Frenchman. Um, (laughs) No surprise that he would say that the French... uh... Uh, sort of yeah yeah precisely it's, it's um, sort of a funny phenomenon in generally sort of european way that they think of geography where if you go to the netherlands the people in the north are seen as industrious and logical and cold and the people in the south <laughs> sort of hedonistic like sort of um just live to party people but then if you cross the border to belgium their next door neighbor is also the northerners are seen as being you know, in the same way, industrious and logical, and the southerners are. Right. And you go to France, and it's the same. So no matter what country you are in, it seems to be that. Yeah, you're always yeah. better. It seems to reset at the border, which is sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know how you can escape this bias, though. As an author, you must think, or probably you know, there's there is some sort of nationalism that sprouts on you when you're born, or at least when you're when you grow up in certain places where you believe. Well, you know, we do things kinda okay in comparison to the rest of the world. Maybe nowadays not so much. Makes me wonder for you as a Peruvian where if a political system is rather, you know, dysfunctional, would you uh-huh. still, do you ever think that, well, at least we're sort of, you know, a bit better than Bolivia or something? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, hmm. Yeah, but the thing is, 
I don't think I would say it's it's a southern northern kind of thing. It's really, I think, one of the most more commonly used indicators in South America is probably just GDP or how the economy is doing or how bad your inflation is. Because once you are below what you would, you know, the amount of money that you need for a comfortable life on average as a country, I guess that's one of the most important things because, well, you know, you don't really care as much for the political system as much as you care about, well, how will I live until next day? That's something I've thought about. Actually, this is an interesting debate because nowadays we see democracies being, you know, the end-all be-all of all, of all political systems. Right. Democracy asserting itself everywhere. Yeah, precisely. Yet, is this really the case? Because some people, and in some states, they don't care as much for these individual, or these core values that we see in democracy, like, for example, liberalism, you know, this idea that you have to be as free as you can within reasonable limits, if you can describe it that way. Some people, you know, just don't care as much. So, for example, if we see Singapore, I think it's a wonderful example, because they are quite despotic in their nature probably you know you have this single party which hasn't changed in i don't know how many years yet people seem to be quite happy there yeah uh, because of, of various reasons it seems to be sort of a technocratic despotism which uh-huh. montesquieu seems like a form of government he wouldn't consider right like despotism is made for people who are very sort of wild and need a harsh crackdown they it doesn't seem to be the sort of rationalized how do you or make a city state work in a right. very small state to make everyone sort of have basic goods. Yeah, well, but here's the thing about Montesquieu. In theory, or at least the spirit of the laws or the book was written in a way where he kind of tried to divorce himself from saying, well, this, you know, this cannot work and this cannot work. It's just every single form of government can work. Okay. Hmm. But you just have to match them to the right places. And of course, there are things just like climate, you know, the principles. And something also very interesting, which was quite a common thought until just a couple hundred years back, the size of the state. Because he, at least Montesquieu, along with most, you know, thinkers of the time, thought that smaller states were more apt for a republic. So, for example, let's say just Geneva it's a city-state, and that's a perfect republic. Rousseau mm-hmm. is a big uh, advocate of, of that idea as well, I believe. Probably he is, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, you know, the larger states must be, of course, despotic because they are too big and you cannot really have this, you know, to make things quick. You have to have only one person in charge that it doesn't take 10 hours to deliberate on whether you should build a bridge or not. And, of course, in the middle... In most countries, I Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I get your point, yeah. Uh, and, of course, there's the moderate state in the middle, which has to be a monarchy because of course it's states that are not too big states that are not too small so let's say states the size of france mm-hmm. uh, which just so happened to be the perfect size for a monarchy and that is the type of government that was in place there at the time yes yeah that is not surprising given that he might maybe be trying to avoid trouble with the government by stating that oh, everything should just stay the way it is <laughs> yeah, I mean, many people think... A change sort of approach. Yeah, but yes and no. Because the thing is, 
France, in his eyes, was changing in a way. He saw this corruption in the state that I mentioned earlier, this erosion. I mean, if we consider, if he considered France to be a monarchy, then he saw, you know, this this idea of honor slowly becoming more corrupt and then changing into a more despotic state where, you know, the law was essentially made by the word of the despot and by nothing else nothing constrained him which essentially he saw or at least many people believe he that's how he saw france at the time though it's funny because then his ideas mostly inspired the constitutions of the bigger and the more long-lasting democracies that we see nowadays. United States. Yeah, the United States. You know, because people say, yeah, you know, Rousseau influenced these other Enlightenment authors, but you know, when it really comes to it, you see more Montesquieu than any of these guys in the in American Constitution. To my next question, which is that to most people who haven't looked into it as deeply as you, Montesquieu is just the separation of powers guy. And of course, that is something that is uh-huh. prominent in the American political system. Uh, what right. does he mean by separations of powers? What are those powers and why does he choose these specifically as being important? Uh-huh. So essentially, he saw that there are three types of political powers, the executive, legislative and judicial. What he wanted to do with the constitution, which he, or at least uh, the way he saw the English constitution, which he named, I believe, the constitution of liberty, or actually he, more than anything, he saw the constitution as having the purpose of maintaining this liberty, which he very, I actually have the quote here because it's it's a quite an interesting quote. Right. He believes liberty to be, or well, he says, liberty can only consist in having the power to do what one should want to do and in no way being constrained to do what one should not want to do. Which, of course, has evoked so much analysis because that's such a vague and poetic quote. Yeah, I like initially. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially a sort of, I think, a bit of a Kantian ideal of, you know, do, you know, uh, everything that is moral is... Uh, or more than anything, everything that is immoral is what no reasonable person would actually want to do. I think it has these ties with reason. But essentially, what he wanted to do with the constitution is preserve this liberty and avoid this corruption into what he saw, you know, the despotic state. And the idea was to separate this executive, legislative and judicial so that no one man or actually at least no one entity could actually become despotic. And I say entity because he saw democracies as also being able to become despotic. If it becomes a thing of, for example, majority rule, where you have this massive group of people and assuming they only have one will, directly controlling what other smaller groups, for example. Uh, uh, like, I guess, direct democracy, which is like a classic, I think. Yeah, yeah kind of. And well, looking more into the constitution itself, which actually I think he connected more with probably monarchy. He wanted to avoid, for example, so that no one should have, let's say, exec- uh, legislative and judicial power, where you would essentially be able to say, well, legislative being the power to make laws and judicial to carry out sentences. He wanted no one to be able to say, well, you know, this is the law now, so you should die. And, you know, the person says this is the law now and the other person gets to decide whether they die. Right. And you didn't want to have, you know, those two things in the same, let's say, governing body. Or, for example, if you have executive and legislative, 
You could say, well, you know, I want to do this, but the law doesn't allow me, so I'll just change the law, and then I'll be able to do what I want. Yeah. And essentially, you know, the idea was to avoid too much power from going to one person or the other, so that no, you know, despots cannot really arise, and liberty cannot be threatened, at least from one governing body. Okay. Yeah, that seems to be the basic idea that he's most famous for. Now, that seems to me yeah. quite perhaps in a monarchy, which you said is sometimes believed to be his preferred form of government, to sort of not be provided for. Like, to me, in a monarchy, it would appear that a monarch can decide what the law is and then execute it. Uh, uh-huh. Or yeah, but... How is he... Is there a separation of power in monarchy, or is that more of a despotism monarchy? Uh, yes. Uh, because the thing is, in a monarchy, you separate particularly the monarch from the aristocrats. Mm-hmm. The aristocrats would be a little bit more, let's call them selfish in a way. The aristocrats would be the people who are more prone to corrupting the government if it comes to it. And the king, he was essentially a protector of the lower people. So essentially, he, he wasn't one of the aristocrats, so to speak. He was a sort of separate entity which cared for the interest of his subjects. Um, um, sort of a, a populistic figure, perhaps, or a, or a sort of benevolent dictator. Yeah, it's almost like an enlightened despot, just that not a despot because there's also, you know, the law, uh, the constitution and whatnot. Yes. Just because, of course, there are constitutional limits on mm-hmm. what, what anyone can do here. He, he's a fan of, I guess, institution in that sense. Mm-hmm. We understand by protecting sort of the, the subjects. Oh, essentially that the aristocrats, or, uh, well, not aristocrats, but the nobles, don't do what they want with them. So, essentially, they don't exploit them, or if, they, if there are liberties in the state, that they don't abuse of them or anything. Because, of course, one would have the legislative and the other one would have the executive power. One would be able to say what should not be done within the state, you know, what, what a state should regulate and the other one should be able to say, well, this is what we will act, you know, do as a, as a nation together. Sorry, what was the question again? I got a little bit lost there. I also got lost. I don't remember what the <laughs> either. Uh, so another thing that sort of interested me is um, you said that there was two types of republics. One of them is the sort of democracy as we understand it today. And the other one is the aristocracy. In what Uh way is an aristocracy a republic, and without a monarch, how does it avoid degenerating into any of the other forms? Uh Ah, yeah, well, the thing of the aristocracy is that you still have a sort of, let's call it, state of of the many. Because in an aristocracy, the aristocrats don't necessarily have to be nobles. Yeah. I mean, if you see it through like a sort of Marxist lens, then yeah, probably you would assume that there's a class difference in which the ruling class is different from the governed class or the ruled class. Yeah. And also, the way that this uh, aristocracy preserves itself is through essentially moderation. You simply don't want the people who are governing to say, all right, well, you know, today I realized no one can do anything against me. Let's just abuse everyone. You simply don't want that. So essentially you have to have this very strong principle of moderation. Uh, Moderation, which Montesquieu said to be his favorite 
his favorite virtue because he he said that he was himself a very moderate man. Interesting because he was also an aristocrat. So hmm, um, some people I look quite a lot into it. This author uh, Althusser. I believe he was a, a French philosopher from the 20th century, wrote a little bit about Montesquieu and came to the conclusion that Montesquieu was essentially just benefiting himself out of writing this entire book because he said, you know, let's analyze every sort of government and then let's see which political class benefits the most. And he was like, oh, the aristocrats. Hmm, why could that be? <laughs> Montesquieu, you cheeky bastard. SMH. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. I wonder from harking back to something you said earlier about his extensive travels, and I think he did study also non-Western governments, um, mm-hmm. could you yes. dig into that a bit more and, and give me the listeners an idea of like what his approach and opinions on these were beyond simply that they are emotional and despotic? On the Oriental states, you mean? Yeah, or the ones that he studied. Like, which ones did he study? And uh-huh. How did he come to his conclusions about them, or what conclusions yeah. did he come to? Actually, it's kind of hard to pinpoint which states he he did study, but I do think that there are some hints throughout the book because a method which he uses a lot is essentially he just refers to examples within history that he just so happens to know about. Now, of course, in his Persian letters, he draws a lot of inspiration from these Persian states. And there are also some very interesting references to China. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, within his book, especially, I think, in the climatology section of his book, he mentions China and how the, the very fertile lands make people reproduce quite a lot. So that the despot can, I think it was something like, abuse them and still have a lot of people coming without them rebelling against him. It was quite an interesting example. But the problem with his, you know, let's let's call them Oriental studies, is that he didn't actually travel to many of these Oriental governments. He just heard it, you know, secondhand from people who had traveled there or from uh, books that he had read and so on, which I think gave him a bad impression and a worse impression than it actually was. Because if his theories were true, things, you know, things such as, for example, the the Persian Empire and and so on, which were quite prestigious, should never have been able to to rise as they actually did. So as someone who's very sort of into the Chinese aspects and two things mm-hmm. in mind one is of course that today and many in china will say that china is simply too big and too diverse for a democracy to right there which is sort of a, a an idea that links effectively into here but on the other hand there's a very effective counter argument here which china is massive and yes <laughs> every single climate type you can imagine exists somewhere in that country yeah yeah precisely uh, and so I, I wonder, does he ever um, grapple with the question of empires that transcend climatic zones? Not really. He doesn't. He just assumes, yeah, they should all kind of go along the same lines in the globe. <laughs> and they should all have an average climate. Yeah. The thing is, that theory actually was kind of maintained up until the creation of the United States, which was a little bit later than his time, I believe. Because, of course, he... Yeah, like, I think Hegel is also sort of into this idea, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it has... 
I think there's a strong argument to make against it, yet I don't think it's a, it's a you know a sort of final argument because of course you can argue well the more area that a state has the less people will be able to interact with each other the less they will be able to know about their needs and of course there's also something to say about efficiency how on earth in a democracy do you want to organize the state in a way that everyone's properly represented if you're not doing a direct democracy already doing a sort of diluted version of democracy you still have a little bit of a problem (laughs) but um of course disproves some of that would you yeah yeah precisely there are probably many ways in which you know democracy can be implemented but of course there are many many struggles as well such as probably representation is the biggest problem because a single state cannot really handle the needs of everyone at the same time which is something Switzerland actually I believe does quite well because there's a greater cantonal independence in terms of lawmaking and uh, law executing and, and so on that is actually a feature that was copy pasted basically from the United States because it also has a federal yeah. system and so uh-huh. I guess that that sort of there's the solution to that basically federalism you give autonomy to the local areas yeah the thing is these more complex type of governments don't really fit into Montesquieu unfortunately because essentially you see them as categorically different these types of of governments you don't see a sort of scale upon which you know on one side there's one person and on the other side there's everyone on a state yeah uh, you just see them as categorically different so you cannot really make this sort of layered system in his sort of ideas one of his books was of course on the greatness and decline of rome now i don't know exactly how much you've read into that but as both of us are sort of amateur interested uh-huh. in the roman empire <laughs> and do you know what his analysis of the fall of rome is and or what reasons he would state about that because i think that always is something interesting that that really gives an insight into how some uh-huh I believe he actually does mention because he does mention Rome quite quite a bit in his book. Actually, there's a, there are some very nice quotes in the about the corruption of government, which are quite interesting. Essentially, uh, I think he mostly talks about uh, lack of political virtue, and he sees that as the passing from or one of the passings from you know the the great Re- uh, Roman Republic to a more weakened Roman Republic, or you know the beginnings of the empire, and as well size, because it, it just became way too big. <laughs> That's why it couldn't be a republic. <laughs> yeah, of course. Actually, I'm trying to find the quote because it's it's quite it's quite a quite a nice quote, um, which essentially was made as a sort of a warning against uh, corruption, or at least uh, the degeneracy of political virtue. Where he says, or he mentions a couple of Roman leaders, Roman emperors, and he says, in these times when you know there was a bad uh, someone who they saw as a tyrant, they didn't care. They cared about removing uh, the tyrant, but there they never cared about removing tyranny. And you know he sees that probably as, as one of the main reasons as to as to why it changed from uh, at least from a republic to a to a more despotic type of state. But I don't know as to the actual fall of the Roman Empire what he thought. Well, to me, it appears that unlike Gibbon or something, he places the fall of Rome at the beginning of the empire. Like it's the degeneration from the republic to the empire that made that 
constitutes the fall? Well, I'm I'm not so sure because uh, the thing is the at least the nice thing that I believe for Hundski is that he thought that any type of government could work as long as you matched it well to you know the the geographical or, or climatological circumstances of it and of course that you match the principle to the government and i don't see why this could not fit with uh, the Roman Empire, because, if, okay, you know, if you have a big state, okay, then just make it uh, sort of despotic. Now, of course, I can see how you can make an argument within Montesquieu that, yeah, you they never truly implemented the principle for despo- uh, despotic states, which interestingly is fear. So essentially, the idea is that the nobles or the people should fear the despot to avoid usurpation. Uh, it's, it's quite a funny theory. Essentially, he says, well, you know, when you concentrate so much power in one man, uh, eventually they will become extremely lazy. Uh, and once this happens, they'll just, you know, get get like a, a vizier or someone who they'll give power to make the decisions and so on. And then they will start actually making the decisions where the despot will just sit back and say, wow, governing is so easy. <laughs> And the idea, of course, is that once this BCR or, you know, whomever, whatever the amount of people actually get some power, uh, have a taste of the despot's power, they will eventually say, hey, I'm doing all the work and I have power. Why am I not the despot? Why can't I reap the benefits out of this if, if I'm doing the job anyways? Uh, sneak into the emperor's bedroom at night and uh, do the... Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Yeah, just unlife him right there and then. Yeah, essentially. So the idea was that everyone feared that the despot would do that. Them first. Uh-huh. The fear of the despot, you know, removing them is what makes them not remove the despot. Yeah, precisely. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, he, has a, he says something very interesting at some point where he says something along the lines, uh, the despot should threaten the nobles next so that the people can sleep at night, uh, which is quite, quite interesting, I think. Hmm. Um, now, does he have a um, theory about why, um, like, let's say in this case, the political virtue degenerates and why it's also how it could possibly be created? Because it seems to me that that is an important, important driver of politics for him. Ah, yes, actually. Um, there are two reasons. One is lack of equality. And the other one is extreme equality. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I think lack of equality is is kind of fair when one person be, has way too much power, and then they uh, it creates essentially an aristocracy because uh, when when people become unequal, then there are some people who can rule while others that cannot. Uh, so it generates into one of the other ones. Uh, and of course, if you have extreme equality, which I think is the more interesting thing, uh, he talks about spirits. So the spirit of extreme equality and the spirit of inequality. In the spirit of extreme equality, uh, people think of themselves as equal, not only in as a citizen, so not only in uh, in rights and so on, but they also think of themselves equals as in... Uh, uh, well, I am equal to the senator, so I should also may- be able to make those decisions. Oh, I am equal to the head of police, 
So I should also be able to make those decisions. Oh, I am equal to the head of that family. So I should also be able to make those decisions. So essentially a sort of entitlement in, well, I should be able to be uh, decide in everything because there's also someone who is able to decide in certain things, uh, which interestingly enough, he believed that it would lead directly to despotism, that there's no other... <laughs> Uh, no other uh, conclusion than if, you know, this is spirit of extreme equality sets in, then despotism w will have to be the natural conclusion out of this. And again, it seems sort of uh, unsurprising for an aristocrat who is born yeah. better than others to say that the idea that everyone is equal uh, would be, uh -huh. um, you know, suboptimal results. I think I'm willing to give Montesquieu a little bit of credit in the sense that even though, yes, he was uh, quite privileged in his aristocratic position, uh, he did a good job at, you know, representing democracies and as also despotic states and so on. Because he, you know, he, he does represent, I think, democracies quite nicely, even though, of course, there's the aspect of... Uh, well, people there are logical to a fault. They're essentially like, you know, the Balkans of Star Trek or something like that. You know, he does describe them as uh, as logical, as as free, as probably the most intellectually gifted and toughest people of them all. And um, yeah, also uh, interestingly enough, he has a theory of alcohol and why the people from the north drink much more alcohol than the people from the south. Yeah, and essentially it all leads back to this climatological idea where, you know, the people with the tougher fibers need much more to get drunk. So they are allowed to drink much, much more than the people from the south who with one sip already indulge in all their pleasures. That's really interesting, okay. Yes, and thus uh, we will see in a couple of years when everyone returns to their natural states how the Finnish became the drunkest people on the planet, <laughs> essentially. Well, interestingly, I, I wonder if he were alive today what he would say about the fact that Finnish consume the most coffee per capita these days. As do, a lot of, do they actually? Yeah, a lot of the Nordic countries. Uh -huh. No way. Consumers per capita. Um, so maybe they need um, some sort of stimulants to awake them out of their sort of st <laughs> <laughs> right drunk which would make them even uh-huh yeah because i think the highest yeah i think the highest beer or at least alcohol consumption per capita is portugal for whatever reason yeah i think that the, yeah the, that seems like it seems pretty much the wrong way around yeah it really does Maybe it goes back to sort of the, the ancient Roman idea of the drunken, drunken barbarian or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it might be, actually. Probably drank. Uh-huh. Hmm. Yeah, though it can also be, you know, a little bit different because maybe it is the case that people in the South, even though they drink more, they drink more moderately. At, at least that's something I can tell from personal experience. Oh, yeah? Now, though, of course, personal experience is, is never a, a very good argument. I mean, from what I have been able to tell, uh, people, at least in Europe, who are more from, you know, Central Europe or Northern Europe, they drink, you know, of course, in average, they drink less, mm -hmm. but they don't space it out. So when you drink, you just get f uh, you know, in, in northern Germany and so on, while people in the south drink much more. Every day, right? And yeah, precisely, precisely. So it brings the average up, but they never get to a level where they are, you know, they completely lost all inhibitions. Mm. They, they always remain at a, at, a, at a moderate level, which Montesquieu would love, of course, with his moderation. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> drink moderate. Maybe Montesquieu was was Portuguese at heart. Yeah, you know he should have gone <laughs> off and a bit further. Yeah, <laughs> and he would have he would have said that that would be the optimal, place, uh -huh. optimal government. <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> hmm. I want to um, sort of come now to the question of what is the most based thing that Montesquieu. <laughs> The most base thing that Montesquieu said, um, I would say it has to be the climatological thing. I mean, just the idea that, you know, some states are... No, actually, well, I mean, it, it's halfway the climatological idea, because I think the nice thing about it is that, yeah, it's not just that democracy is the greatest, uh, you know, political system of all time, but, you know, maybe, maybe, you, if you have a really enlightened despot, you can really make it work. And I, I, I really like that about him. Mm, fair, fair enough. What's the cringiest thing he said? Aha! Uh -huh. Um, probably the other side of that coin that, aha, yeah, it, it must be, yeah, it must be like the northern barbarians and the southern barbarians and us French people, the more moderate of them all. We have the, the greater genes and the greater capability. Um, well, probably, I think, you know, it, it has to also probably go along the lines of, of how he misrepresented all the great empires that have been, and all the great civilizations that have been in a little bit more, let's, let's call it warmer climate. Because there has, and there has been, like, pretty great stuff. Like, the Islamic Golden Age is nothing to be, to be ignored. And, you know... Empire from where you're from, uh, you know... <laughs> I wouldn't even exactly call that a warm temperature place, because it's the mountains and making it... Yeah, maybe we have a French temperature, and that's why it was so great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but not an oxygen... Ox air oxygen content. Yes, <laughs> oxygen deprived, damn. <laughs> that's why we couldn't be the Spanish, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Though, hold on, I think the combination between, you know, the European influence and the, and the America and, or let's call it the Inca or indigenous influence, make the true uh, current American, which is the true moderate, because you go all the way from North Mexico, go through the equator, go all the way to the south, and it just averages, averages out into, you know, average French temperature or something. And that's why nowadays South America is the best country. Okay, let's not get that. I'm still waiting for San Martin to go out of his grave. Uh, as well as, yeah, as well as Simon Bolivar. Uh, you know, in the time of the greatest need, like Merlin or something, come out of a tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then Montesquieu will come and say, no, but they have, yeah, no. <laughs> but my book no. but guys like oriental must always be despotic yeah no but then when you have to say oh my god we are <laughs> they are the most western of them all oh my god guys that's why the government is so great i think that would be the true you know montesquieu idea you you or far enough east you end up uh, west you know Shh, they don't know that. <laughs> don't make your your listeners that educated. <laughs> yeah, true. That's top secret. Top secret. Yeah, yeah. You know, only only re rectangle maps are allowed in this house. With the Mercator projection, uh, mm. 100% correct. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why, you know, the United States and Canada and Russia are so despotic in comparison to the true, you know, chatness of the Brazilian Empire and, uh, and, and the Peruvian state and so on. His uh, attempt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, precisely, precisely. <laughs> All right, before we close out, I want to ask you, uh, I want to do a segment um, about uh, recommendations. Aha. Uh-huh. And... I'm going to start by recommending the Cautionary Tales podcast by Tim Harford. It is another podcast almost as good as my own, I must add. And it's about stories that warn you not to make certain mistakes or sort of, yeah, cautionary tales, as it says on the tin. Uh, do you have any anything you'd recommend to the audience, uh, be it anything, really? <laughs> Oh, I would highly recommend the Persian letters. Spe- uh, um, it, it doesn't matter whether you're into philosophy or political philosophy or political theories or political science or not. Uh, but anyway, you can both enjoy it and probably learn a lot, both about Montesquieu as about politics. Um, it's it's quite a fascinating, I think, tale, and it's it's quite nicely written. It's essentially, you know, literary-wise, it's, it's written as a sort of collection of... Uh, it is the correspondence between these uh, travelers um, who go to France and see Europe in this, um, uh, let's call it oriental lens. Uh, it's also a little bit of a satire as to how French culture was at that time. Uh, I do remember that at one point, I think he pointed out that uh, um, women had something different to wear every day because the fashion changed so rapidly that there was really no, you know, no one day where you could wear the same thing or something similar. It, it's quite fun. It's quite fun. And yeah, Okay. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> And probably, you know, especially uh, at the very beginnings, or at least uh, closer to the beginning than to the end of the story, you have the uh, a very special, I think, part of the book called the, or at least I call it the Tale of the Troglodytes, um, where essentially uh, I think it's Uzbek, um, if I recall, who uh, narrates this. Uh, uh, political, very, you know, heavily politically induced tale as to um, as to the state of troglodytes and it talks about its the, the corruption of the state, its transformation it talks a lot about political virtue and I think you can probably tell most of Montesquieu's political theories just out of that fragment. It's what... The spirit of the law is not the book you should be reading. Pick up yeah, pick the Persian letters between those, you know, 10 pages. That's all you need. And then you get a PhD in, uh, you know, modern political theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Uh, all right. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for the day. Our producer is Constantina. Our guest today was Alessandro. And I am, as always, hopefully, your host, Darius.